your word fall to uh, the ground empty. And we know that your word uh, continues on, continues strong, uh, even as everything else uh, feeds and falls and passes away. And so we, we have real hope in that, Lord God. And uh, we realize that uh, as we prayed about that audience that the people of God in the Old Testament had uh, at, at Sinai, so it is the same for us just now, that we come to you. And uh, you shall speak uh, through your word. Uh, what an exciting thought that is, Lord God. So we ask that you would uh, soften our hearts, give us hearts that are receptive, give us minds that are attentive, give us ears that are alert to hear from you. Uh, Lord God, give us that humility we need before you. Please enter in in a powerful way to our lives, to our church life. Uh, please spur us on and encourage us and convict us, Lord, if that is your will. And please, Lord, send us out back into the world rejoicing and rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, turn us to see our Savior and our King. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Of um, there's lots of themes in the Bible. Of all the themes that surround the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, of all the many, many themes connected to the life and the work of Jesus, one theme that seems not to receive the attention that it deserves is the theme of the victory of the Lord Christ, the theme of the victory of Jesus. I'm sure you can see what I mean straight away from, from the outset, that though we are in, in, in church very quick to consider motifs, uh, themes like reconciliation, let's say, or forgiveness, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ never quite seems to get the airtime that it warrants and deserves. And I, for one, think that that is rather strange. Because let's face it, that is one of the predominant themes in all of the Bible. Isn't it? The victory, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it, for instance, that God promises straight after the fall? What is it if it is not a coming victory? Isn't that right? A promise to crush the serpent's head. And then you and I move forward into the Psalms and the prophets. And what confronts us there but the victory of God. God's right hand has worked salvation for him. And we heard uh, earlier on today. Then we get into the New Testament scriptures and what becomes abundantly clear is that Golgotha, the dirt and the mud at Calvary, in the sight of God, it is a battlefield. It is a battleground where something has happened. And listen to what it is. There, Colossians 2, God disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them all 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. The victory of Jesus. The triumph of your Savior and mine. Well, this evening, uh, we come to what I'm pretty confident is a well-known story in the Bible. The account of David and Goliath. And though there's lots of ways we could approach this, what, what I want to do this evening is to focus in on what we learn in this chapter about that victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does 1 Samuel 17 exist? I think that part of the reason that this chapter exists is to point you to a later conquest, a later victory, a victory by our representative, shepherd, king, warrior. And so this evening, I want us to think about First Samuel 17, and I want us to consider the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over his great foe. So, have you got your Bible there? If you can't uh, get a copy of Scripture, you can even run to the back to Bernard's table and, and grab a copy of Scripture. If not, turn up on your phone, but let's go to first that long chapter of Scripture. <coughs> 1 Samuel 17. The first thing that we, we need to think about, the first thing that is an, an obvious theme in this section of Scripture is the ferociousness of the enemy that we're dealing with here. The ferociousness, the enemy. So let's think about the enemy together. Now, uh, you're all familiar with 1 Samuel, aren't you? It's a book. Um, if you are familiar with this book, um, then the way that this chapter begins does not surprise you. Is that right? I think it is the fourth or the fifth time in the book of First Samuel what we find it, the Philistines rise up and they begin to threaten the people of God. Do you hear that? So it's the fourth or the fifth time the Philistines are threatening the people of God. Let's, let's just try and get the scene correct in our minds for a moment. So did, surely you worked it out. What you've got are two opposing armies. We've got that, don't we? But they are set high on two hills. And they are facing each other, these two armies. You got that? Two armies high facing each other. And there is this uh, dry riverbed between them, this dry valley uh, beneath them. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to try this evening. And the younger people in here, you do this as well. So try to imagine yourself for this evening's purposes in amongst the people of Israel, okay? So where are you? You're up on one of those mountains, okay? And you're sat with all the army of, of, of Israel. Now, if, if you can picture yourself there, and if you look down the valley to the riverbed, what, is it you, what do you see at the beginning when you look down? Do you know what you see? It's now... The Goliath appears. And uh, it's quite an appearance, is it not? Uh, it's, quite, it's quite something. This guy's a brute, isn't he? This guy's a behemoth. He's a, he's a giant. If you do the measurements, you find out that uh, Goliath was uh, over, and actually well over nine foot tall. Okay, he, he's, he's a big guy. He, he's a brute of a bloke. But it's not actually just his stature, is it? It's his armor. 
that draws our eye in our imagination? Because consider some of the details we've got here. So first of all, this giant over nine foot tall, he's got a, a, a bronze helmet on his head. So that was very unusual in the time. So usually warriors in the ancient world, they would have a, a leather cap. No Goliath. Then what else? He's got his chain mail. You notice some of the details? I mean, incredibly heavy, intimidating. Do you notice it's not just covering his chest, but covering his legs as well? And then answer me this, is Goliath armed? You bet your, your bottom dollar Goliath is, is armed. Not only does he have a javelin and a sword, He's also got, it's overkill in a way, is it? He's also got a spear and a shield. Now, let me ask you, what do you feel? What do you think you're supposed to feel as you read these details about Goliath? Come on. Fear, right? I mean, what we're supposed to do right now, as we're reading this and we put ourselves in here, what we're supposed to do is quake. Do you know what we're not supposed to do? We're not supposed to miss what Goliath says. So I wonder if you'd look at verse 8 and verse 9 because it's critical. So he speaks up, doesn't he, this giant? What does he say? Yes, do you notice he's taunting and he's mocking the people of God. But what, what is it in short that Goliath wants? What does he want? He wants a scrap, doesn't he? Goliath wants a fight. Goliath wants, crucially, he wants a representative from amongst the armies of Israel to come down the valley to fight him. And, and what is at stake? Can I throw that to you? Do you notice what is at stake? Everything is at stake here. Look at verse 9. This almost inevitable defeat to this, this ferocious chap will see the people of God enslaved. That's the emphasis. They will have to enter servitude. Now, there's a lot there, but this is brilliant, isn't it? Don't we all love a little bit of David and, and Goliath? It's a marvelous story. But what should you and I linger on just now? Well, given the, the parallels here with the Lord Jesus Christ, Surely what we need to do is to think for a moment about the power and the might of the enemy that Jesus Christ has defeated on your behalf. Yet as soon as I say that, isn't it true that even if you take into account some of our morning services recently, the influence of Satan, the power of Satan, is something that in our everyday life, we'd very rarely call to mind. Is that not true? And yet, consider this reality, and it may sound controversial, so stick with me. I want to say this. Prior to Calvary, in a sense, Satan reigned. Now, it does sound a little bit controversial, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit dodgy from the front this evening. Careful with what I'm not saying. I'm not saying prior to Golgotha, God was not God. I'm not saying prior to Calvary, God was not sovereign. I am, however, saying this. Prior to the cross, Satan had staged a coup, hadn't he? And he had been allowed to a degree, to a degree, to succeed in that. 
coup. What does scripture say? It calls Satan the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of this air, influence, power, might. And so surely, as we think about 1 Samuel 17, from our position with the people of God, we see what was all our desperate, desperate need Prior to the cross, humanity, we were, like the people of Israel in this story, we were cowering in fear, cowering in our sin. What did we need but a representative? We desperately needed somebody who would fight on our behalf, lest, lest we be eternally enchained by the evil one, by our enemy. So we see the ferociousness here of an enemy. The second thing that I want you to to notice with me is the faithfulness of the warrior. That's the second heading, the faithfulness of the warrior. Now, um, even though storybook children's Bibles go a little bit too far with a story, and they tend to have uh, David pictured, don't they, as a little more than a toddler, you know, going out to fight uh, Goliath. Certainly, the storybook Bibles that I had as a kid, that was the case. This little kid waddling out to fight Goliath. Even though the storybook Bibles go maybe a little too far, I do think you and I have to appreciate that our main character in 1 Samuel 17 was very much just a young lad. Now, you can see that, I think, if you think about the story Evidently, from this story, David is not yet of age for military service, is he? And in addition to that, he's also given this, what seems to be quite a childish role of go-between. Do you notice that as well, that he is, he is shuttling between uh, his father and then between Jesse's other's, other sons? And, and don't you love it? how it pans out when when David actually arrives at the front line. (laughs) I love it. The timing is absolutely perfect. So just the very moment that David arrives from Jesse carrying, what is it, cheeses and so forth for his brothers, what happens just at that moment, Goliath striding out and taking one of his shots and bellowing to the people. Notice the reaction though. Do you see that this enrages David? In fact, such as David's passion, do you notice the word begins to spread around the Israelite camp? First of all, Eliab, his brother, hears that David wants a fight. Who else then hears? Saul hears. And isn't it remarkable what happens? I can't get my head around it at all. Saul sends for David, interviews David, and then Saul sends a young untrained guy out to battle on behalf of the people of God. Now, if this evening we were just to treat this portion of scripture like that, so if we were just to take this, you know, 1 Samuel 17, skim over all the details, this is what I fear would happen. You and I would end up viewing this chapter in the same way as the world views the story of David and Goliath. How does the world around us, how does our culture and society view this story of David and Goliath? Do they not just view it as a a metaphor of bravery? 
Isn't that it? Isn't, don't they view it as just a metaphor, a story, a metaphor of, you know, trying to take on a seemingly unbeatable foe? Uh, a couple of examples maybe. Um, Darvel. Do we remember Darvel playing football against Aberdeen a couple of months ago and beating Aberdeen? Some of us remember it very well indeed. What was that? If it was not a David and Goliath story. That would be the back pages, wouldn't it? Or a young lawyer takes on a team of corporate solicitors and comes out on top. Oh, it's a beautiful David and Goliath story, Christian friend. What is the problem with that approach? That is not the message of 1 Samuel 17. This is a story about the greatness of your God. And it's a story of faith in this sovereign God. Look with me to see it in verse 37, first of all. Let's look at verse 37. Here, what's happening? David is trying to convince Saul, Saul, please send me to fight him. Do we know Scooby-Doo? Do we know Scrappy-Doo? Let me at him, you know? That's this, isn't it? This, this young man trying to convince Saul, let me go, let me fight him. But look, he's, he's speaking and recalling all these encounters he's had with bears and with lions. But look at what David actually says. Now, to whom does David attribute all of his past victories? To whom? You notice in the text? The Lord did this. Now, just for a moment, think about how remarkable or how unusual that is. Who's David? He's a young guy. And he's not taking pride in his own agility. And he's not taking pride in all of his victories and all of his strength and how he's outmaneuvered his foe. He attributes it all to God. Then, if you've got your eye on the text, look up a little bit to verse 26. And I'll tell you, this is everything. Verse 26. Now, what, does, what happens here? So Goliath is at the point where he is shouting out. And he's, he's mocking and ridiculing. Listen to what David says. David says, Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So do you see it? Look, I'll, I'll ask you this. What is it that propels this young man out into battle? What is it? What is his chief primary foremost concern? You all know the answer, don't you? Why does he want to go? It's for the glory of his Lord, the glory of God, isn't it? I'll give you the statistics. Eight times in this one chapter, eight times, Goliath is found mocking God and mocking God's people. Eight times here. And this man, David, will not have that. And it is the honor of the Lord that sees this young man act. Now, as we consider that reality there, I think actually that it remedies an error that we can sometimes make when we think about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we've got there remedies an error. See, what do we often view as being the primary reason? You think about it for yourself. What do we think is the foremost reason 
that Christ took on Satan at Calvary and defeated his foe? What's the primary reason? I think very often we think that, well, Christ did that primarily for his church. Christ did that for me. He did it for his brothers. He did it for his people. And we say, hallelujah, he did that. But you see, a slight error, do you not? Because what was the foremost reason? What was our Lord's foremost concern? Even at Calvary, the chief concern was for the glory of the Lord, the glory of his Father. Even on the the very first step of the battlefield, in Gethsemane, at that point, what does Jesus cry out? But even now, Father, glorify your own name. Do you see it? As we have in 1 Samuel 17, our warrior, your warrior, King David's greater son. What did Christ do at Golgotha? He strode into battle because the honor of his father was at stake. So we see the ferociousness, the enemy, the faithfulness of the warrior. You'll excuse me, a third point, and that is the feebleness of the weaponry. I think I will make a fool of myself here, but I'm maybe not alone, but for years, I thought that the reason that David didn't wear Saul's armor out into battle was because it didn't fit him. I wonder if I'm alone in thinking that. There's me and my storybook Bibles again, probably. But I just thought that it was too... Saul, head taller than everyone else. David, young guy, I always thought, yeah, the armor just didn't fit him. That's not what we're told in the text, is it? In verse 39, we see that David didn't wear the armor simply because he had not tested it. He was not used to this. It hadn't been tested for him. But then wait, do you notice how he does go into battle? Now, you, you know the details, like familiarity is a, is a problem for us tonight. Of course it is. But isn't it amazing to see how he goes into battle? If you think about it with new eyes, what does he choose? Five stones, five stones. No, I'm, I'm taking 50 stones. If I'm taking stones, he's five stones. What else? A sling. Now, it's, it's not a toy. I mean, it is a real weapon. But come on, when compared to Goliath's armory, it does seem slightly underpowered, wouldn't you you say? And isn't the uh, apparent insufficiency of, of David's weaponry, isn't it reinforced by how Goliath reacts when he sees him? What does Goliath do? Doesn't he laugh? Doesn't he deride? He can't believe his eyes. He's asked, for, he's asked for a foe, a warrior, and here's this little chap coming out with a sling. And he's laughing, and he's laughing as Goliath. And he's laughing at him. And he laughs until, until David brings him down with one beautifully precise, precise shot. Now, Christian friend, as you and I think about that, the weaponry and the situation there, like if you and I just take a step back for a second, please, do you see there is a question that we are supposed to ask from this portion of God's word? 
There's a question that we probably don't ask because we're so used to this text. But the question we're supposed to ask is why does it pan out like this? Maybe you are asking that this evening. Why does God use a young man with a sling? Are we not supposed to ask, like, why? Why does God not use Saul here? Why does, why does God not wait a few years till David's old and then, uh, you know, military? Ser- why is it not just a normal soldier with a sword taken on Goliath? We would still be amazed, wouldn't we? Why is it this young guy? Why is he using a sling? And I thank God that I don't have to wrestle with that because God gives you the answer in verse 47. He does the exegesis for you just in case we make a mistake with us. We ask, why use a young guy with a sling? And David says, this has happened that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Make sure everyone, you get the next bit. This happened that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spears. Everyone following? Why does it happen like this? Why, young man, why a sling? Why? So that we would all know that God is a God who does not use conventional means. Hear me when I say it. It happens like this so that you tonight would know that your God is a God who uses weakness. Your God is a God who uses, consistently uses weakness. Now, how does this play out? I think we all know it. This is a, this is a theme that we return to often in the life of the church, isn't it? God using weakness. You know this. You've heard preachers maybe stand where I am standing or in different churches. You've heard it before, haven't you? God uses weakness. What does the preacher follow that up with? What did they go on to say? What do they say? They say, look, God uses weakness. And this means, even if you think of yourself as pathetic, God can use you. And that's good and that's right and it's true. But I would dare to suggest that it doesn't go far enough. The message of 1 Samuel here is not so much that God can use weakness. The message is that you are God. He does use weakness. And I'm going to read this out. And I would ask you, and I like humbly would ask you, and it's a very private thing, but I would ask you to think about how you view your own life and how you view yourself. I'll read this out. Please listen. If tonight you see yourself as nothing in the eyes of this world, if tonight you see yourself as socially awkward or shy, if you look at your life and view it as being, until this point, a true failure, If physically you're not much to look at, if you're getting to an age where you're having to slow right down, or if you're yet to hit an age where where anyone seems to take note of you, if you are tonight struggling mentally, if tonight you're struggling materially, if you're not popular, pretty, or powerful, I want you to consider this truth 
the reality, Christian friend, is not that God might use you. The reality is that should you be truly concerned for the honor of Jesus Christ, and you take a stand for him, seek to live for Jesus Christ, the truth is, more likely than not, God will use you and is going to use you in powerful ways for the glory and the honor of his name. And should you be sitting there doubting that and wondering about that, where can you look for assurance? To whom can you look? You say, Andy, I can look at David to see God using weakness. Of course you can. But who's David pointing you to? Where do we see God use weakness? You know the answer. We can look to Jesus Christ. Consider how Christ has won victory. Think about his life. I mean, born in poverty. But it's not just that. You were, Lord, born in dirt. Born amongst dirt and donkeys. You know, a carpenter's son hailing from the most contemptible of towns, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Think about Jesus. Nothing to look at, no beauty that we might desire him. Isaiah 53, what did he have? What did he have? Nothing. Nowhere even to, to lay his head. And, and just at the point where we think it cannot stoop any lower, it can't get, it can't get any more humble. What were the weapons of weakness that God used in Christ to defeat his foe. It was not even five stones and a sling. It was nails. And it was nails in his hands and in his feet. We're supposed to ask of this portion of scripture, how can this be for why? Use a sling and a young man and you now see the reason, don't you, if not before, to point us to Golgotha. And what do we see there? We see our Lord saves, but not with sword and spear. Last thing. We've seen the ferociousness of the enemy, the faithfulness of the warrior, feebleness of the weaponry. Last thing, most briefly of all, the fullness of the triumph the fullness of it. Um, do you remember, uh, Christian friends, what I asked you to do? Especially the, the young people. Can you remember what I asked you to do at the beginning of the service? Where did you, I want you to be? I wanted to you, picture you, picture yourself in amongst all of the people of Israel. Do you remember that? Up in a high place, overlooking the battle. You're sitting just now with the armies. Remember that? <laughs> do you realize what you've just seen? If you picture yourself there. You have just witnessed David and he has slung a stone and it's hit Goliath square on the forehead. And like the false god Dagon earlier on in the book, what's just happened? This big fall to the ground. Goliath has just fallen with his face to the dirt. And isn't it the totality of David's victory that's kind of reinforced for us here? Do you notice what a hero, do you notice what he does next? Goliath falls and David runs. Now the haste is evident a few times. David sprints and I've got to be honest about it, it's not PG-13, is it? I wouldn't let my children watch this if it was a film or some of my children. 
Because what happens next? Like David runs to Goliath. He's on the ground. And David, with purely with two hands, he picks up Goliath's sword. And yep, no way around it. He cuts off Goliath's head, doesn't he? Before first taking the head to King Saul. And then second of all, taking the head to Jerusalem, presumably to be put up on display. Now, this is where I want to end. I would ask you just to consider the participation of the people of God. So let's look. It's the last thing. So let's look at verse 52. You try to find verse 52. So just at the point where Goliath's head it rolls, what do the people of God do all around us? Do you notice when they've all been sitting, what happens? They, they rise up, they roar with aggression, and then all of the people of God, they've looked down, they've seen this victory, and the people of God, they run, don't they, with everything they've got down this hill. They're chasing the Philistines, and what do they do? They put the Philistines to death. They chase them. I think in that, there is something so pertinent, so important for, for you and for me for this week. So we've, we've looked at 1 Samuel 17. Um, what have we seen? I think everyone, I hope, would, would see that we are shown here a picture of the victory of Christ. Christ has won the victory. But I think in that, in verse 52, we are also shown what your role this week should be, what my role should be. So do you hear me? Christ has won. He has secured the victory. But do you see what you ought to do this week? You have to pursue evil. You, Christian friend, are to pursue sin. Christ has won the victory. But this week, even tonight, you and I are to pick up our spiritual weapons. Pick up our weapons of truth and righteousness and faith. And we're to run after evil. Run after the indwelling sin in our life. All of that wickedness. Christ has won victory. But we pursue our sin. And we seek to put it to death in the power of God. And what spurs us on? What is it that lies ahead of us as we do that? I think, honestly, it's the same scene as we've got in 1 Samuel 17. What do we know lies ahead? As we fight our sin, we know, as here, one day, you and I, we're going to be with our victor. Soon, we're going to be with our warrior king. Soon, Christian friend, very soon, we are going to enter into the new Jerusalem to see that victorious warrior and we shall see the head of our enemy, Satan, defeated and dead, displayed there. Friends, Christian friends, until that day, there's a theme in the Bible that we can cherish. You know what it is. Until that day, we can cherish the theme of the triumph of Jesus Christ. Remember as you go home tonight, Romans 8, 37. You, Christian, you're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Why? All because of our representative, our shepherd king, and all that Christ, the warrior, has done for us. Let's bow and let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we, we praise you that as the great shepherd king, that you have not gone down into a valley, but that you have ascended the hill of Calvary and that you have waged war on behalf of your people, though we sat helpless, cowering in fear and in sin, you did all for us. We thank you that you are victorious and that you have passed your victory to your church, that we are triumphant all through you. So we pray that you would help us to pursue wickedness, pursue our sin, eh, that we might bring glory and honor to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.